Welcome to Boston Confidential, Beantown's true crime podcast. Boston is a great city, but there's more to it than the Freedom Trail and Fenway Park. There's a startling underbelly to the city, and Boston Confidential will take you on a guided tour of the hub of the universe, Boston, Massachusetts. Hey everybody, welcome back to Boston Confidential. My name's Barry McGuire, and I'm your host. I'm a 20-year private investigator on the streets of Boston, and I help run a company called Impact Due Diligence Investigations. If you need anything in terms of investigative services, feel free to contact me at Impact. If I can't help you personally, I'll certainly direct you to the right person or agency. All right, guys, let's get to it. Just some housekeeping stuff, as we usually do at the outset of each episode. Man, we got a massive response both on email and in terms of listenership for our last episode on Andy Puglisi out of Lawrence, Massachusetts. It's a heartbreaking story. And the opportunity to have solved that, evidence was just lost. And I know it wasn't malicious, but it was incompetence. It's just heartbreaking. I know I recommended the movie that Melanie Perkins had made, Where is Andy? And in that movie, she states that there were five registered sex offenders, or what would become sex offenders in today's age at the pool that day, including Wayne Chapman, who was arrested two weeks after Andy's murder with ropes, ties, child pornography, photographs in his van in Waterloo, New York. This was about two weeks after Andy was abducted. There was also some socks with blood on them. And I believe that would have been tied back to Andy. Andy's mother had identified the socks as belonging to not Andy, but Andy's sister, right? Because Andy was in a hurry to get out of the house, throws on sister's socks you know, thinking I'm only going to have these on a few minutes and they end up in Wayne Chapman's van. And six independent witnesses identified photographs of Wayne Chapman as being present at the pool that day. So if Chapman was in fact present that day, he's such an animal. I mean, the odds are it would have to point directly to Wayne Chapman. So It's just insane that there was so many basically sex offenders at the pool that day and how many there are in everyday life. We go about our lives not knowing these people are all around us. It's absolutely insane. One of the things that stood out to me, guys, is Wayne Chapman had been arrested previously, I believe in the 60s. Don't forget, we're talking about 1976 at this time. But in the 60s, Chapman was arrested and convicted of sexually assaulting a young girl and tying her to a tree in the forest. That's our mistake. Society let him out of prison after doing that. What do we think is going to happen to this guy? He's going to all of a sudden start going to church. He tied a little girl to a tree after having his way with her. He gets out of prison. That's our society. It's almost like we have a death wish for us and for our children, you know, it's perplexing. All right, guys, I was hoping to have 
Aiden Kearney, Turtle Boy, back on after his hearing, his bail review hearing last week. We were unable to schedule that. He is busy and he is fighting this. And on a couple of his live streams and on his blog, TB Daily News, there are some new items and you might want to check them out. He takes the charge by charge. There's eight felony counts now, eight or nine felony counts and a lot of it seems to be focused on third-party conduct and things taken completely out of context. And I don't think the aim of the Commonwealth is to convict Aiden, although they'd love to, and they would send him to jail, make no mistake. And he has some bravado about him. You know how he is. But this is some serious stuff. They would put him in jail. They just would on any level. Because they hate what he's done to them. He's made them look a fool. He made the state police look like a fool. Michael Morrissey, the district attorney of Norfolk County, those are some powerful people. And when you cross these powerful people, men with guns show up at your door. My worry is that, yes, you're definitely going to be able to winnow some of these charges down, okay, and have them completely dismissed, I believe. Several may remain, and several felony counts will put you in the House of Correction. I don't think that's the aim. The aim is to sideline Turtle Boy from talking about this case, from interviewing people on this case. He hasn't done that, and he doesn't seem to be the type to ever do that. So this is going to be a battle going forward. But the Karen Reed case, guys, just to take a step back and give this a 10,000-foot overview, I've never seen anything like this with Turtle Boy, that element, or this shit show that is this case. We're still waiting, and I say we like we're the defense, but we're still waiting for Discovery to come back, I believe. I don't know if they've received it yet. You'd never know. But there's a lot of Discovery that's been withheld, and it's just very suspect. Where's the DNA to find out if the dog bit John's arm? That shouldn't take that long. And you can pay to have this expedited. Because if that's canine DNA on John's arm, the case against Karen Reed is over because that means he got into the house and was bitten by the dog Chloe, right? But I don't know. And the light this has cast the Massachusetts State Police in and the district attorney's office in it just makes regular people like you and I think, man, this is corrupt. And, you know, it's right before you. Take a look at it. What do you think? Give me a shout out at Barry at BostonConfidential.net. Let me know if you think this was simply incompetence or outright corruption. Let me know on that one. I'd like to figure out what you're thinking on this one. Also, guys, my final thought on this for right now is. We're waiting for the FBI to sort of come in and save the day here. But remember the FBI's history in Boston, Massachusetts, how corrupt they are. Let's just do a little background on the FBI in Boston. 1968, the FBI knowingly helped convict Joe Salvati, Louis Greco, Henry Tamiello, Peter Lamoni, Wilfred French, Ronnie the Pig Cassesio, the FBI helped convict them of murder. Several of those people 
got life sentences. The FBI actually knew who did it because it was one of their informants, Joe Barbosa, and they lied. And three of those people died in prison. They let the men die in prison, guys. So we're waiting for the FBI who did that. That's the FBI Boston. We're waiting for the FBI Boston to help out in the Karen Reed case, but worked with somebody who they knew was an active killer, Whitey Bulger and Stevie Flemmy. And don't forget Frank Salemi. Salemi wasn't an informant. The other two were. But they knew Whitey was killing people while he was working as a top echelon informant for them. That's who we're waiting to come to the aid of Karen Reed. Gives me a lot of butterflies in the stomach. How about you? Imagine if your life was held in the hands of the Boston FBI. Holy cow. All right, guys, we're on to our case for this week. That was a long opening. All right, so the case we're covering today has become a staple in New England true crime. It's a true whodunit, and it's the case of Mara Murray. A lot of the information that you'll hear on this podcast comes from a book I read a while back by James Renner. It's an excellent book, and it's called True Crime Addict, and I got mine on Amazon. And Renner has also written another book called Amy, My Search for Her Killer, Secrets and Suspects in the Unsolved Murder of Amy Mahalovic. And that's out of Ohio, and I think Renner is from there as well. I've read both of these books, and they're very good. He's an investigative journalist, and he's an excellent writer. During his investigation into the Mara Murray case, he did run afoul of the Murray family. I don't know what the genesis of that was. At a certain point in the book, I guess you could say he wasn't super kind to Mara, but I believe he was relaying what he believed to be the truth at the time. I think he's since evolved on that. But True Crime Addict is the one about Mara Murray, and you should check it out. It is supremely well done. Also, I don't think I've ever disclosed this before, guys. My foray into podcasting began with a podcast called Missing Mara Murray. That was the first true crime podcast I began listening to as podcasts came to fruition, right? I had listened to several small business podcasts, but the true crime genre kind of came out of nowhere with the Missing Mara Murray podcast. And you should definitely listen to that. It's, I don't know, multiple, multiple episodes by two guys out of Worcester, Massachusetts. This podcast is supremely well done. It has the most haunting intro music I've ever heard. And they do a wonderful job on this case. And I highly suggest that you go and listen to all of the episodes on Missing Mara Murray. Not to the exception of Boston Confidential, mind you, but in your spare time. So guys, Mara disappeared in 2004, so we definitely have to jump into the Wayback Machine. I can't really believe that 2004, I guess February 2004 will be 20 years ago this year, right? So man, it seems like yesterday. So Mara at this time seems to be a young lady who had some consecutive bad breaks. 
And at that age, a lot of our bad breaks are due to our own behavior. And as you mature, you look back and you see that. I think Mara didn't see that right now because she was in the midst of it. But she was troubled. And I'm going to tell you all about that. But let me tell you about what happened on the day that Mara disappeared in 2004. And this is one of the strangest cases that I've ever heard of, quite frankly. So Mara was a student at UMass Amherst in Amherst, Massachusetts, which is in Western Massachusetts. And on February 9, 2004, she was obviously having a bad time of it. And at a certain point, had lied to her professors saying she was going to be out of school due to a family emergency for a few days. And she was apparently heading to the White Mountains where she had vacationed as a child with her family. She was originally from Hanson, Massachusetts, and she had a pretty tight-knit family, and they had always went up to the White Mountains for vacation. So between 3.30 and 5 p.m., she leaves Amherst, Massachusetts, and apparently heads up 91 North towards New Hampshire. And New Hampshire is like on the right side, and the Vermont border is directly to the left side. So you're in that beautiful country between Vermont and New Hampshire. Before she left UMass Amherst, and she was studying nursing at UMass Amherst, and I'll tell you all about that and her educational pursuits prior to UMass Amherst. And I think we're going to do this, guys, in two episodes. So if I leave something out, I'll probably cover it in the following episode here. But before she leaves UMass, she packs up a lot of her belongings. Some people say it was too much for a few days stay. Other people say she was likely to come back. But she left a note on one of the boxes she had packed up, basically, for her boyfriend. It indicated there were problems in the relationship and it was likely headed for breakup. She thought they were going to get married. I actually don't remember, quite frankly, if they were engaged or not, but his name was Bill Rausch, and I'll tell you more about him later. But Mara was going through some stuff, and it must have been heavy. She was 19 years old at the time, and, you know, sometimes we go through this stuff as adults and it's overwhelming. But she had a series of shitty events, some of it related to her behavior and others just life, you know, the bad breaks of life. But she was in a bad spot. She drives up 91 north towards New Hampshire. And along the way, it is said she had stopped at a liquor store and purchased some alcohol. I believe she had a fake ID. And it was more alcohol than probably one person could consume. The person she purchased this alcohol from at the liquor store said she thought there would be a party. There was so much booze and maybe there was going to be, but I'm not entirely sure. There's so many question marks around this case. And I know people in Mara's circle could enlighten us, but I believe they've chosen not to for strange and undetermined reasons. So just prior to 7.30 p.m., Mara had made it up to Woodsville, New Hampshire, 
which is a neighborhood within Haverhill, New Hampshire, in the White Mountains. It's very rural. It would have been dark at that time. And Mara was driving a beat-up old Saturn. So a local resident and I guess a witness, they'd become witnesses anyways, at this location. It was Route 112 in Haverhill or Woodsville. Again, Woodsville's uh, neighborhood, a section of Haverhill, New Hampshire, small town. But it was in the area called the Weathered Barn. And I know, but if you've ever lived in a small town or a rural area, that's how residents say, oh, you make a right on the 112 at the Weathered Barn. So that's where this accident occurred. It was a single car accident. It seems Maura Murray was driving and hit a snowbank. There was snow on the ground. It had just been a series of snowstorms, if I remember correctly. So snow was piled up on either side, and she had hit one of the snowbanks and kind of fishtailed out. And some local residents, and I'll get into their names and exactly what they saw later, saw Mara. And one of the residents comes out and speaks to Mara and says, I'll call the police and they'll call the tow truck. She begs them, begs them not to call the police department. And one of the other witnesses, don't forget it's dark now. One of the other witnesses from one of the other homes believes they saw a man in the passenger side smoking a cigarette. That's open for debate later and we'll get into it. But What is factual at this point is Mara begged one of the people who tried to come and help her not to call the police. They initially agreed, but then did in fact call the police. And it was believed Mara had been drinking, was that the cause of the accident or the spin out or whatever? I don't know. I don't think the car would start again. And As they're talking tomorrow, some other cars did pass the roadway and all this. But the witnesses who went out to help her go back in the house to call the police. And by the time they turn back around, poof, Mara's gone, literally into the ether. It seems like she would have had to have disappeared during this time frame within about a 30 second interval. The police arrive there. Mara's gone. They do start to look for her in one specific direction. And it would be criticized later that there wasn't more of a search because you have at least one person out there in the elements. It was freezing cold. It's New Hampshire in February. Snow's on the ground. And the patrol offices of Grafton County looked in a certain area, one side versus the other, and didn't see her. So I think the original thought was that Mara had been picked up by somebody following behind her. But regardless of the reasoning, she was missing. Now, Mara's reluctance to deal with the police at the accident scene comes from, I believe, she was in an accident just a short time before on campus. And it left her shaken up. A lot of things in her life left her uncertain. And we'll get to them. I just want to cover what happened on the day she went missing. So she was kind of in an upset state. 
definitely didn't want to talk to the police. And by the time these people turn back around and the cops arrive, she's gone. And they look for her because they think she'd at least be walking on the roadway. Now, Mara was a runner and she ran in college. So could she have gotten some mileage in at that point? I don't know. But she was nowhere to be found. So in the area where this occurred, guys, it is very rural. And, man, in the winter, it's desolate. It's pretty desolate. I believe in warmer months, they have more tourism. There's skiing up in New Hampshire, sort of in that area. But there's just not a lot of traffic. So it's a hairpin turn where this weathered barn is. And there's, at least moderately frequently, there are accidents there. And the cops get there about 10 minutes later, and Mara's gone. I believe there was an open can of beer and some wine in the back seat or the passenger seat. There was other stuff. There was some directions, I believe, to Vermont, Burlington, Vermont. But I think she could have went in that direction previously, before Haverhill. So... I don't know if she was heading in that direction, if she was following those directions to Burlington. I think she was depressed. I think she needed some time away. And I think she indicated that in the letter or email to her boyfriend, whom I think she was breaking up with. It would come to light, guys, a few months later that a local contractor had actually witnessed what he believed to be Maura Murray or at least a girl fitting or a woman fitting Mara's description, I believe to the west, four or five miles to the west of the accident along Route 112. He didn't report this for about three months for a variety of reasons, and he was looking over paperwork, and that jot his memory to make him remember that was, in fact, the February 9th date, 2004, when Mara went missing. That's the last reported sighting. This woman was reportedly wearing clothing that looked like what Mara had on, and she was kind of tall. Mara was about 5'7", so you don't really know, and it's not concrete either, but that's the last reported sighting of somebody believed to be Mara. Fred Murray is Mara's dad, and he was away on business when the county police left a voicemail on his voicemail service. The car was towed, and it was all pretty cut and dry. I think the cops believe, guys, that this girl had been drinking, struck that tree, and I didn't tell you previously, but the airbags had deployed. That's why the car was inoperable and it had to be towed out of there. And there was significantly more damage than previously reported. It was, you know, a pretty bad accident, I guess. But it wasn't reported that way for a while. But the car was inoperable. And in terms of that person I witnessed reported sitting in the car smoking a cigarette, this dispute on this because some people say it was a cell phone charger. You know how it makes that glowing red light. But I'm not sure. And this may have been a missed opportunity. But again, there's so many question marks in this case. So the following day, there's a be on the lookout issued for Mara Murray. 
But the cops, again, I think they believe this woman was just trying to beat a drunk driving rap. And if she had come back to get her car, I think she would have, right? Because she wasn't there to blow the breathalyzer. And that happens. It didn't happen in this case. Nobody came back to claim the car, ever. But Fred Murray, I believe, February 10th, he was up there. It was either February 10th or 11th, but he gets up there pretty quickly. He lived in Massachusetts, and he was working out of state, and he didn't get the voicemail. But he flies up to, not flies, drives fast, up to New Hampshire, Haverhill, New Hampshire. And I believe he starts giving the cops a bit of a hard time. And I think this was the catalyst for a crappy relationship between the Murray family and the police department. He was initially critical of the area of the search, the intensity of the search, and how seriously they were taking or not taking Mara's disappearance. And I'd have to say, I agree with him at least a little bit. And can you imagine if your 19-year-old daughter is out there? This is wilderness, right? This is the White Mountains. And it's not going to be good. I mean, what's the best case scenario? I don't know. Mara's purse and credit cards, debit and credit cards and cell phone were taken from the car. So she had those with her. They've never been used again. And man... So what the father said almost immediately, he said he believed that some local dirtbag, and I believe these are close to his words, local dirtbag, came across Mara basically in need of help and killed her. That was Fred's message, really. And he was critical of the police. I think that kind of had a relationship effect where basically... If you're going to say F me, I'm going to say F you. And does a police department in Haverhill, New Hampshire, come across a ton of missing persons, a ton of severe crime scenes? I don't think they do. I think they took this way too light. And Mara's dad basically called them out, and I don't think they liked it, and I still think they don't like it. So Bill Roush was... Mara's boyfriend. He was in the service. They had actually met at West Point. Mara had attended West Point, I believe, for a year before transferring to UMass. She had some problems there, and I'm going to tell you about them in the next episode. But Bill was not in Massachusetts. He was not in New Hampshire. He was halfway across the country. I don't know if he had graduated from West Point or was you know, close to doing so, but he was not in town. He was far away with many witnesses, I believe. But it would come out later, guys, and it's just kind of shocking. Bill had a violent relationship, plural relationships with women, where at one point he was accused of pushing a woman down the stairs in Washington, D.C. a few years later. And so that causes people to look again at Bill Roush, and I think they did. But again, there's been no arrests in this case. Mara's never been seen again. And just after this, the rumor mill starts to churn, basically, that Mara ran away. And there were some sightings in Sherbrooke, Canada, just over the border 
you know, from the Vermont, New Hampshire border. And these people who would later be interviewed stated, yeah, it looked like Mara Murray. But I don't know. Mara is kind of one of those people who could be mistaken for others. And it's just another question mark, right? It's just another question mark. James Renner would later hypothesize, guys, that Mara was being followed by somebody else, hence all the booze she purchased at the liquor store. And I don't think I mentioned it to you. Mara had also hit an ATM and the police refused to release the ATM camera footage for whatever reason. I don't know why they do things like this. Coming up on 20 years on this case pisses me off. But could you see if she's the only person in the car at that point? Who knows? Who knows? They won't release it. And I believe her dad, I believe Mara's dad, Fred, his criticism, it was accurate in the beginning. It was. I think when the state police picked up the investigation, things got going a little better. But the Haverhill Police or Sheriff's Office, I think that's Grafton County, they lost a lot of time. They just did. And I guess that's kind of par for the course for a rural police department. They don't come across this all the time. And by the time they realized the severity of it, a lot of time had passed. So I think the sightings in Sherbrooke, Canada, that's probably the best case scenario for Mara, unfortunately. But what Fred had said originally was that he believed that Mara had come across a local dirtbag who feigned trying to help her and killed her. And there were suspects to that exact effect. And some dogs, some cadaver-sniffing dogs have been reported to go crazy in the area of a local house and the owner of that house, his brother would later produce a knife and give it to Fred Murray, saying he believed that it had been used in Mara's murder. No arrests were coming from it. The cadaver dogs, I mean, I think that's a fact. They did go crazy, but they found no body. And there's just so many question marks in this case. Do the answers lie with complete strangers? Because there's more questions and I believe some answers that friends of hers have never divulged, never divulged. And that's shocking to me. So I don't know if the answers lie in New Hampshire or at UMass Amherst, you know, it's crazy how somebody can just so fully disappear. And this case would later be called the first case in the social media realm, really. And it spread like wildfire. And some rumors started, some have been debunked, some have not. But I'm going to get more into Mara's earlier life and what happened at West Point next week. And I'm going to leave you here. I know I left a lot of question marks here on the table. I'm going to give you some answers next week, but man, the whole case is a question mark, really. But say a prayer for Mara Murray and her family. I think they need the help. It's been 20 years, but 
We all have known cases that have gone longer than this and have been solved. This case can be solved. So it's just crazy and heartbreaking, but I'm going to leave you there and I'm going to get on to the next episode for you. If you need to get a hold of me, email is the best platform, Barry at bostonconfidential.net. That's Barry at bostonconfidential.net. I'm going to get on to the next one for you and I'll see you on the flip side, guys. 